welcome to the joy thrill ride of Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live on stage and without notes. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, we're going to take you on a drive. It's the slam from the second show in our action-themed season, Drive, held on December 27th, 2016 at Jump, our new all-ages venue in downtown Boise. During the slam, we randomly drew four names from a car-shaped lunchbox in honor of our show sponsor, Lithia Lincoln of Boise, and the brave few took a joyride on our stage for a five-minute story. Step on it. It's story time. Chris Harrington. Well, I don't know how you get a job with the uh, Potato Commission, but I assume it helps to get them baked and butter them up a bit. (laughs) Always good to start off with a pun. Well, this story is about the Everglades. I was just out of grad school. I got a job as a biologist studying the fish populations in the mangrove swamps along the fringe of the Everglades. The Everglades are an amazing place. There's nowhere like that in this country. The diversity of wildlife is just amazing. The diversity of fish and reptiles and insects and plants. It's like nowhere else. They're all trying to hurt you, which is also amazing. <laughs> we had caterpillars, you brushed them, you could put you in the hospital. We had all kinds of stinging insects. We had plants that had caustic sap. You'd break through them, it would get on your skin and burn you. And then there was the well-named sawgrass. So you just kind of got used to there being a lot of dangers. The second time I was out in the backcountry, I had an alligator growling beside me, and my boss said, do you hear that alligator? I was like, yeah, he's right beside me, but I don't see him anywhere. We just kept on working. So this one day, we were working kind of late, and the sun was getting down towards the horizon, we tossed all our stuff back into the John boat that we'd used to go the few miles down to Florida Bay, and where we'd transfer all the gear into another boat that we used to go on across Florida Bay. And the sun sets really fast in the Everglades, so we started flying down that creek, which we knew really well, and the sun got down below the horizon. There's no twilight down there, it just gets dark. We got down to the last little bit of that creek, and the last little bit of that creek is totally overgrown with mangroves. It's a really deep but really narrow stretch. There are a lot of prop roots hanging down, and it's a dripping mangrove forest. It's totally dark. I'm up in the bow of the boat with a box of vials in my lap. I was taking water samples to measure how far the salt water was getting up into the Everglades at different times of year. And we're just idling along because there are a lot of tap roots hanging down from these mangroves and you had to kind of brush them aside so you don't whack the person behind you. So we're just idling along and kind of hunkered down because of the vegetation closing in above us. My boss in the back with the flashlight looking around in the woods. And suddenly he screams and guns the engine and loses control of the boat. We start careening off the banks and goes smacking up into the Everglades, into the mangroves. And I just dropped the vials. They went everywhere and grabbed onto the boat. I thought we were going over. And there's this huge commotion in the back. And he's yelling and there's this thrashing and the engine's racing. And 
I thought he was being attacked by a gator or something. It probably only lasted a few seconds, and he got control of the motor and said, it's a tarpon. Well, tarpon launch themselves into boats, and they seem to like to target people. There was one place I was at that it was just routine to be poling along and feel this whack in my back and stop and reach down and take the fish and toss it over the side. And it would happen several times each time I went through there. But that was a nursery area, and that was just a little one to three pound tarp. And this one wasn't really big, but it was a 10 to 15 pound tarp and about three feet long. So imagine this from my boss's perspective. It's dark, dripping mangrove swamp, and you're looking around the darkness with a flashlight, and it's murky water, and you look down into the water, and just as you shine the light down, this big silver head comes flying up out of the murk at you, <laughs> smacked him in the side of the head and fell into the boat. I would have screamed too. <laughs> so we got the fish back into the water, headed on back, and that's my uh, boat driving story. So just, I guess the moral of the story is to uh, keep your hands on the wheel because you never know what's going to jump out at you. Thank you. The next slammer coming to the stage is Angela Root. Come on down. Um, this happened to me on Christmas Eve, which is what, four days ago now? I don't even know, three days ago. So it's really rough, so don't judge me. Um, I always drive up to Boise for Christmas. I grew up here, I went to high school here. I moved away um, afterwards, and <laughs> I drive up every year, and my family hates it, because they're like, you know, it's crazy, it's snowing, you come from LA. Thanks, buddy, I appreciate that. Um, it's like, you're coming from LA, it's really, we're really scared, and I get all the text messages, and then I get really happy when I lose service because I get to be alone and listen to music, and it's great. Um, so this year, I actually rented a car instead of driving my own car, and the reason for that is because um, I have a lease restriction, so I didn't want to put more miles on my car. And like an adult, I got insurance, which was great. Um, I also had to rent a luxury vehicle because it's Christmas and they don't have any normal vehicles left. So I'm cruising up to Boise in a Cadillac Q. <laughs> um, feeling like Snoop Dogg, it was great. And um, I'm trying to make it by 9 a.m. so that I can go to the hot springs with my homies, one of whom's in the audience, and um, Christmas tradition. And so I'm driving up the road and uh, I decide to pull over for the night because it's safe and it's really bad. The roads were terrible. If you drove up here, you would know. So I pull over, I stop at a Motel 6, I go to sleep, I wake up at like 4 in the morning and I start driving. And the weather is awful. Like you turn on your headlights and the snow is coming, so it's, you know, white. So you turn off your high beams so that you can see 20-something feet in front of you. And uh, I passed by a car that had its, it was stopped in the middle of the road, and I drove by. And I'm a woman traveling alone, it's the middle of the night, and I'm like, I'm not gonna stop, that's really dangerous, my mom would kill me. Um, but then I did stop, because 
I know that in that section of the road, it's old Highway 95, it's right before Jordan Valley, uh, there's no service. And so if these people were really hurt, I would feel terrible if I didn't help them, so I turn around. And I get there and they're like, oh no, we're good. We just, you know, this is the one little place where you can get cell service. Thanks for stopping. And I'm like, yeah, I'm a good person. Like, woo, right, gonna make it to Boise. And uh, I did not want to miss the chance to go to the hot springs with my friends. So um, I'm happy about that. And then like five minutes goes by and I take a turn really fast and I sped out. And I went off the bank and I went flying into the field. Um, brush is going everywhere. I'm like, you know, just like all the crazy action movies taught me, I'm like slamming on the gas instead of the brakes. And I'm like trying to keep the car from going left and then I'm trying to keep the car from going right. And then I hit a piece of brush and the car goes and it almost tips over. And it goes and it hits the ground. And I'm like, I'm alive. <laughs> I'm alive. This is insane. So I get out of the car. And I'm shaking, much like I am now, but not because I'm nervous about talking in front of a bunch of people. And um, I walk around the car, and it's dark outside. And I can see the highway um, because there's lights coming in the distance. And I turn my phone on, and I'm like looking at the damage of the car, looking at the damage of the car. And the wheel is off the rim, is off the axle, is off the car. And like everything around the car is just like, crazy messed up, but the airbags didn't deploy and the engine is only slightly smoking, so um, I'm like, lucky, right? So um, I see this car and I start white, like waving my cell phone light around, crazy, screaming like, help, SOS, and like the car turns around, luckily, and uh, they, they pull forward and um, I run up to the, it's a truck, and these two guys get out, and one of them is six foot eight. I'm not joking. And the other one is normal. And, uh, <laughs> and the giant is like, hey there, you, you, you all right? And I'm like, yeah, I'm, uh, I crashed my car. And he's like, and I can't curse to tell this story, so I'm just gonna say like beep, because it would be offensive. Um, but he's like, man, you don't be able to beep. Beeped in a, in a beep, 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 beep when we were driving by and beep, 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 beep. And I was like, yeah, yeah, it was insane, man. I don't know what to tell you. I'm really lucky to be alive right now. And he's like, well, we'll, we'll get you out of here. We just, you know, we was out beep, beeping last night. And beep, 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 beep. And this, this beeper over here is beep, 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 beep. Don't worry about him. He's crazy. And I'm like, okay, cool. Um, I just probably need to get to a telephone or something. And it's still dark, okay? And, uh, and these guys are like, well, well, we'll come help you with your luggage. You got much? And I'm like, I got two bags. And, and they're like, okay. So they walk into the abyss with me. And they look at my car and he goes, beep. Uh, you, you, are, you are studly. That is impressive. You got it all the way out here. Beep, beep. And um, his friend is like, his eyes are like this big. And he's like, like left to right, um, not really talking. It's freaking me out. And they get my bags, and the giant just like takes takes my giant bag and just goes, like sets it on his shoulder. And I grab my bag, and we walk to their car. So I get in their car, and it's littered with stuff. And um, they put me in the front seat. They throw my bag in the back seat, and in minutes, it's like covered in snow because it's a blizzard outside. And um, 
I'm in the front seat and they start asking me questions. It's like a five mile drive to Jordan Valley. And he's like, man, you got some wild hair. And I'm like, yep. And he's like, where are you coming from? And I was like, Los Angeles. And he's like, oh, one of them. And I was like, yeah, uh, just coming up to Idaho to see my family for Christmas. And he proceeds for the next maybe five minutes to ask me a ton of random questions, most of which are inappropriate, and a lot of which are insulting. Oh, man, okay, sorry. I know, I know, I know, I'm sorry. It turns out that these two boys are giant supporters of Donald Trump, and they would not help me if I was not a supporter of Donald Trump, which I'm not, sorry to the Trumpkins, but I will tell you, um, and it's not offensive, I'm happy for you. You'll love this story if you supported Donald Trump because these two men saved me, right? Like, I was in a place where there was no service and they took me through a gas station, a trailer with a gigantic, uh, what's it called? Um, flag, what's the flag with the X? Thanks guys, Confederate flag. Um, woke up their drunk friend to look at my tire just to tell me it was crazy and I had no chance. And then got me to a phone where I could call Enterprise um, Enterprise came and got my car, but I had to get back to Boise, so then they brought me to Boise. Two and a half hours out of the way, um, we had the most ridiculous conversation you can imagine, and the driver, Giant, showed me his Motley Crue brand in his arm. Um, mind you, he's only 25 years old, so I thought that was pretty cool. And when they dropped me at my mom's house, um, I introduced them to my mom, and she called them her Christmas miracles. And, uh, <laughs> That was how I got here, and um, I'm pretty happy about the fact that two people that I would have judged any other day of the year saved my life. Um, so, and I'm going to the hot springs tomorrow, yay! And our next star is Emily. Um, so, I have a story to tell about um, the time that I was driven crazy. So when I was in college and I was about 19 years old, I started working at a bank. I worked at Wells Fargo in Caldwell, Idaho. And I went to College of Idaho and worked there as a teller. And when I first started, um, I remember talking to my coworkers and they all loved to share the story about how a year prior they were in the worst bank robbery in Idaho history. And I had thought, Yahtzee, because lightning is not gonna strike the same place twice, right? So like you got the bank robbery out of the way, thank you so much, and um, continued to work as a teller. And I was inspired to put my name in the little lunchbox because there was so much talk about the inner voice and how that was such a guide for people and I had always thought my whole life, if I was ever in danger, I would know. I would have this spidey sense that would indicate like something bad's about to happen. And um, that was not the case <laughs> at all. <laughs> um, it's interesting, actually, looking back the, the afternoon, because, spoiler alert, I'm going to be in a bank robbery here shortly. Uh, I was having lunch with a coworker. And he was new, so I was telling him the fun story about how this bank was in the worst bank robbery in Idaho history. He said, if our bank is ever robbed, I'm gonna grab the shotgun out of my truck and they're gonna wish they'd never robbed the place. 
And so I'm behind the teller line, and this bank is rather unusual because there's the place where people come to do their banking, the world's longest lobby, and then the bankers that sit in the back. And it was about four o'clock, and I'm the first teller you're gonna see. I'm the one who says, welcome to Wells Fargo. And um, someone opens the door, and he is in a black hat, wearing all black clothing, black boots, and I immediately hit the panic button, because I'm like, you do not wear that into a bank unless you're gonna rob the bank, right? <laughs> and I paid attention during my compliance training, and I pushed my panic button, and um, then he starts to run. And he runs and he jumps behind the teller line. And then I just see this little red laser. And I was like, ooh, what is that? And then I realized he has a gun. And I was five months pregnant at the time with my first daughter. And he runs up to me and points the gun at my stomach and says, I'm going to blow your fudging brains out. Give me everything you got in your drawers. And so it was so interesting, simultaneously, the world is so different. Time is completely distorted. And I had to start telling myself to breathe because I'm going to pass out. Tunnel vision was very real for me. So I tell myself to breathe in and out, breathe in and out, breathe in and out. And I'm emptying my drawer. And it was so interesting because I wasn't panicked. I just thought, well, what an unusual thing that's happening to me right now. And then he goes to my coworker right next to me, and she starts emptying her drawer. And I look at the clock and I think, oh, it's four o'clock. Maybe I'll go home early when this is done. <laughs> <laughs> and then he goes back to my coworker, Shauna, and um, you know how there's fight, flight, or freeze? I was gonna say stop, because that's the option she chose. She just stood there staring at him. <laughs> And he is becoming incredibly agitated. He is screaming and shaking this gun in her face. And she empties her drawer. And then he has us all lay down. He says, everybody lay on your stomach. And I am five months pregnant, so I'm like, I don't know what to do. So I lay down in kind of this really awkward position. And I crawl my little hands over to my coworker, and we just hold hands together. Because you don't know what he's going to do. And he just circles around us. Then he jumps off the teller line and leaves. And this is where I really lost my mind. The second he leaves the bank, I just crawled up against the drawers and screamed. Like this weird, like, like guttural, like primal scream. I don't know why. And then one of the bankers emerges and she goes, did we just get robbed? <laughs> so I pop my head up. And there's a gentleman standing there with a deposit slip. And he says, can I make a withdrawal? So I also realized, apparently, when I lose my mind, I swear like a sailor. And I said, fudge, no. So another interesting thing about bank robberies is you can't talk to each other. The police come and they tell you you can't talk to anybody for a certain length of time until they can talk to you individually. 
And so I have all this weird pent up energy and the detective comes over and he says, you know, Emily, I need to talk with you about what happened. And I said, I really don't feel good right now. And he goes, well, we really need to talk. And I said, okay, fine. So I sit down with him and he starts asking me questions about what he looked like and what happened and how long it took. And I have no idea. My sense of time and memory is so distorted. All I do is vomit on the detective's shoe. <laughs> so I was the last person interviewed. And so they said, we could now call our loved ones. So I, I think, okay, I'm gonna call my husband. And I call and I call and I call and he doesn't pick up, doesn't pick up, doesn't pick up. So I call my mom and she picks up the phone and she's at work and I said, mom, it's Emily, my bank was just robbed. Oh, it's my call waiting, I gotta go. And I hang up the phone. <laughs> my husband had called me back finally. So I, I talk to my husband and <laughs> I call my mom back and she's very panicked and um, we were finally able to go home. It was so late at night. It was like nine o'clock at night by the time the police were finished and everyone was done. And that's when I started to realize um, the effects of this. I was driven more and more crazy. I, I wasn't sleeping. My eating patterns were really weird. I decided the next day after the bank robbery to go to Walmart. Terrible idea. Because I started to think everyone was about to rob me. And, um, <laughs> the moral of the story, because you are creeping up my back. Um, it was a really crazy experience that drove me crazy for years, but not anymore. It's a story. Hey, wait a minute. I know this guy. Ladies and gentlemen, this is our Slammer of the Year 2016. <laughs> Is that why it's Leo's dad? You're, Leo's dad. Are you incognito? Yes. You didn't want me to know your real name? That's right. I'm Kevin Mullen. This is Kevin Mullen. He's Leo's dad. I'm Leo's dad. It's All relevant right. to the story. Okay, good. <laughs> and although we had no notes, they didn't say no visual aids, so this will come in handy later. So this is a story about a drive that many of you have done. If, you've, if you're parents and you have small children or have children at all, that have been involved in sports, you've done this drive. You've done this drive a hundred times. Driving your children from your home to their sports practice. And I have a couple of sons and they play soccer. And so this story takes place of me driving my son and his teammate to soccer practice. But before we get there, we have to rewind about eight months. I was on active duty for a long time, and um, the team that I was assigned to at Gallon Field, uh, we have inspectors. If you've ever been in the military, you get inspected regularly, and uh, our inspection team is out of uh, uh, San Antonio, and they're out of Fifth Army, and they come up to the, the teams that I'm assigned to every 18 months, and then they inspect us. And one of the inspectors I'd had a regular uh, professional relationship with, his name is David L. Brown. And Dave would come and he'd, he'd watch me do what I do and can you do what you say you can do? And they'd set us up and we'd go through our paces. And uh, one day we were in a planning meeting or um, uh, if you've ever been in a military uh, inspection, the last thing they do, the feedback session is called an AAR, an after action review. And Dave and I, we're in this AAR and Dave is sitting there, we're waiting for the thing to get started, and Dave's wearing a hat. It's a, the National Wild Turkey Federation ball cap. And I said, Dave, I really like your hat. He goes, really, you do? And I said, 
I said, yeah, I like your hat. And he takes it off and he hands it to me. Thanks, I wasn't trying to get your hat, but thank you very much. So Dave is like every other person in the military. <clears throat> when all your stuff looks like everybody else's stuff, you get in the habit of writing your initials or your name on everything, from your hat to your boots. Your name goes on everything. In fact, I had an ex-girlfriend one time. She said, do you have trust issues? <laughs> and I said, no, why? And she said, because your name is on everything. So I said, well, it's kind of a military habit. Your, your stuff looks like everybody else's stuff. Well, Dave's the same way. Dave's a retired master sergeant in the Army. He now works for uh, the Defense Department, and he travels around and does these inspections. But he's got this military habit. Now, David L. Brown is his name, and his initials, he's gone one step further than just writing his initials. He's turned it into his own logo. And this is, this is David L. Brown's logo. D. L. B. <laughs> this is David L. Brown. And Dave has this logo on the brim of this National Wild Turkey Federation hat right where your fingers would touch if you rendered a salute. <laughs> now, fast forward eight months. I'm driving my eight-year-old and his nine-year-old teammate to soccer practice. And they're in the back of my truck, and they're looking over my shoulder, and they can see right under the brim of my hat. And I, in the rearview mirror, I can see these two little boys whispering, and they're snickering to each other. That's never a good thing with little boys. So I turn around, I'm like, what are you guys up to? And Leo looks at me and go in the rearview mirror and says, Dad, Isaac wants to know why you have a penis and testicles on your hat. <laughs> and I said, what are you talking about? And he goes, you have a penis and testicles on your hat. And I take it off and I go, well, you know, that does look like a penis and testicles. <laughs> so 18 months later, I tell this story to Dave Brown. His buddies think this is hilarious. And I know every story is supposed to have a takeaway or a learning point. I guess the learning point is old soldiers and little boys are obsessed with their penis and testicles. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is brought to you by our story party, Bob Haycock, Amy Moran, Karis Kimball, Hannah Mae Schaefer, Karen Moore, and me, Jody Eichelberger, with big-time support from the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation. This project is supported by public funding for the arts through the Idaho Commission on the Arts, the Idaho Legislature, and the National Endowment for the Arts. We also receive support from the Boise Arts and History Department. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, our season sponsor, Lunchbox Wax, and the Drive Show sponsor, Lithia Lincoln of Boise. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello. Show photography by Paul Budge. And our musical guest was Elijah Jensen Lindsay. Shout out to our marketing guru and co-founder, Jessica Holmes. Support this storied program. Get tickets to our live show. And stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Story Story Night. Story Story Night.